0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection
1: with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our
0: Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter.
1: Very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your questions, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like the proper spelling of that, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com click on the Watch Live tab and you'll be sent to our streaming site ccftucson.online.church. There we will have a banner below the screen where you can not only type in the email address for later use, but on the right hand side of the screen we will be able to see your questions live when we are on the air. We also have a social media platform in YouTube at A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, if you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken off of those platforms or even edited selectively against our permission, we can still host you on our website. They can't censor us on our own platform. We encourage you to engage with us wherever and wherever you can, or whenever rather, and wherever you can. But when it comes to the topic of which we will be engaging with you on, it will be sincere, by- Bible questions. Sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, about the Bible, meaning that the end goal of the question leaves us in the Bible rather than outside of it, and of course that it is asked in the form of a question. We are in Jeopardy format today. We'll be looking forward to engaging with you on those topics and under those conditions. And hopefully be able to not only communicate God's Word to you in a clear way, but in a personal one. And speaking of personal, we also want to make sure that God is the one who's first and foremost honored through this broadcast. So Peter, why don't we uh, start off with a word of prayer and see where the Lord takes it?
0: Sounds good. Father, we thank you so much for the work that you do in our lives, how much you love us and care for us. We do want to give this time to you, Lord, to use it to honor you and to seek your truth within your word. Uh, I pray that me and Sean would speak in a way that honors your word, Lord, and that those listening would be blessed by it, edified by it, and brought into a closer union with you. We love you, God, and in your name, amen.
1: That is true. Now, to start us off as we're waiting for the questions to come in, uh, it seems like the I guess, benefit of issues in the social world, I guess, becoming more and more controversial and taxing, is they're forced to catch up with where theologians have been sitting for centuries. The good news, of course, is that despite the very poor thought that's being put into these things, they are at least starting good conversations. And when it comes to your ministry as well as Bo, let's you deal with the topic of sexual purity on a regular basis. Now, obviously, the world is under no obligation to hold to itself. Christian ethics in regards to anything, specifically their sexuality or not. So when it comes to, I guess, uh, how these issues are being addressed, uh, you sent uh, me earlier today an article that was rather amusing in it approaching the topic, but the good news is the topic is at least being approached. So what was that article about, and uh, how do we as Christians not only, I guess, balance out the questions that they're asking, but also understand the answers to these questions we ourselves have and where we got those from.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, so the the article in question is from insider.com. Now, the slew of these articles have been released since the overturning of Roe versus Wade on, I believe that was Friday. But at any rate, you have a lot of articles talking about the concept of basically becoming celibate in light of the events that happened with Roe versus Wade. So large amounts of women that are saying that they want to reevaluate their sexual promiscuity and perhaps become a little bit more uh, controlled in selecting sexual partners and things like that. Uh, The title of this article is Swearing Off Men and Avoiding Intimacy. Generation Z Reconsiders Sex in the Wake of a Post-Roe versus Wade World. So interestingly, uh, after the pill was invented back in the 60s, you had the sexual revolution in the Western world in which people were able to successfully disconnect sex from the natural consequences contained therein. The biggest one being procreation, having a baby. Then after the 60s, you get into the 70s and the passing of Roe versus Wade made this even more tenable because even if birth control fails, which sometimes it does, now you have an option of actually killing the unfortunate consequence of your hookup, namely the child that you procreated so for years that is predominantly how the united states has viewed sex now this is nothing new some people think that we are very progressive and our ideologies are really new no they're not they're very very old incredibly old as a matter of fact in first corinthians chapter 6 Paul is writing to the Church of Corinth, and they had a view of sex that is pretty similar to our modern-day view of sex. So in talking to them about their view of sex, by the way, they were having sex with temple prostitutes. That was just a cultural thing for them. It wasn't a big deal. So casual hookup sex was really common in the ancient world.
1: All but assumed.
0: Yeah, all but assumed. In fact, you were kind of weird if you didn't. And most women, by the way, would be required to serve in the temple of Aphrodite, which means serving as a temple prostitute. Usually as children, by the way. That's right. So great culture. We should definitely bring it back. any rate. Uh, in sarcasm. First, yeah, sarcasm. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking about the Corinthian attitude towards sex. This is their statement. So he's quoting them. He's not, this is not what Paul's saying. He is quoting the Corinthian church. Now in verse 13, he says, food is for stomach, the stomach for food. Now, this is how they describe the sexual appetite. So they're making an an equation here. They're saying, well, we have physical hunger, and this denotes our need, our body's need for food, and we also have sexual hunger. We have sexual passions and desires, which denote our need for sexual promiscuity. So if I deny my body food, I'm going to die. If I deny my body sexual pleasure, Therefore, it's going to be damaging to me. It's going to be negative or harmful towards my body. Uh, By the way, this type of thing, you know, we feel like we're in this enlightenment period. But there have been numerous, numerous articles and papers and even documentaries about the idea of if you are celibate, it is bad for your body. It will destroy you. And I could get into the supposed... (laughs) the supposed claims of what it does specifically to the male anatomy, but it's all lies, right? It's just not true. We know it's not true, but they are using the same type of Grecian argumentation that was present during Paul's time you have a sexual appetite. If you deny it, it is bad for you. This is what Freud thought. He thought that all of wars, everything that's wrong with the world is essentially because we are sexually repressed and we need to be a little bit more sexually enlightened. This is what Alfred Kinsey believed, who really screwed up our society, right? This is a pretty prevalent idea that sexual promiscuity is the way to go. And being self-controlled sexually is bad this is why people are seeing the revision of roe versus wade which by the way will not uh you know i wish it did you know i wish i wish all the propaganda going on right now from people who are pro-choice was actually true uh unfortunately i have to kind of grit my teeth and say it's not true uh abortion will not be illegal across the country unfortunately and we're going to have to deal with that in various other ways but when you listen to this article you'll see how something so obvious, right, the fact that sex produces children just doesn't really hit the modern-day generation. So they got numerous quotes from people in Gen Z. Uh, Those of you guys who don't know, people in Gen Z are people born after 1996. So if you're after 1996, and I believe the cutoff is around like 2008, 2009, depending on who you talk to, if you were born in that time period, you are Generation Z. They haven't named the new generation yet, but in a couple years they will. Once that generation enters the workforce, but this is Gen Z. A couple people from there. This is they name her Adeline. They never actually give you her actual name for basically the the purposes of protecting her identity, but. Uh, Adeline says she was always telling herself that she would wait till her 17 to start exploring intimacy. When she reached that age earlier this year, she said she went to her mom and had an open conversation about sex where she talked about getting on birth control. But ever since the draft decision was leaked, they're talking about the draft decision of Roe versus Wade. I mean, the overturning of Roe versus Wade that happened about a month and a half ago. And then the actual decision, like I said, earlier uh, later last week. But ever since the decision was leaked, Adeline said she's had to entirely rethink whether or not she wants to start having sex, telling insider that she's terrified to make a choice that could leave her with an unwanted child. Now they talk to another girl with the name of Catherine, uh, says that she is already kind of sexually promiscuous at this point. Catherine says being on birth control is not an option due to the way it negatively affects her physical and mental health. She says... Uh, that's what she said. So she's been left to reevaluate the consequences of casual sex that have suddenly become very real. As much as I want to have fun in my 20s, what happens to me when the fun stops? What happens when I might be in need of an abortion and can't access that, she said. The unknowns have left her feeling like a more reserved version of herself as she contemplates the risks now tied to her body. Uh, This is Madeline again. In hookup culture, if you're just hooking up, you don't just bring up this kind of stuff. uh, What she's talking about is sexual conversations, talking to someone about possibly Having a child, possibly getting pregnant. She's like in hookup we, we culture. We don't
1: talk to each other like sexually active adults. We, we don't consider the fact that there is one and only one way to produce children, and it is what we are choosing to participate in. In hookup culture, there is no such thing as a husband or wife conversation. And now I have to think in those terms. Good for you.
0: <laughs> and she, she ends it by saying, "You don't. It doesn't bring up that stuff right away." Normally but when it comes to if you're actually going to sleep with someone, I think at this point, that definitely needs to be addressed. Now, when she says at this point, she means in light of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, Now, a couple men chimed in. This is very telling. A few men who did respond were more likely to say that the possibility of Roe being overturned did not influence or change their attitude towards sex. So you're like, oh, okay, that. Maybe that's positive. Maybe guys have always been thinking in this way. Uh, not really. But that doesn't mean that some Gen Z men aren't worried. Carson M., a student and Lyft operator who responded to an insider call-out, said he's afraid of impregnating a partner and being left with no options, especially amid such compounding crises as the current economic downturn and baby formula shortage. Okay. Okay. Come on, man. You're forklift certified. You should
1: be able to read into this.
0: (laughs) So you you have a man chiming in. And again, his reason for being afraid is I won't be able to try to convince my girlfriend to have an abortion. So I don't really want to hook up with women right now. Now, the men who said that they weren't uh, there, they weren't worried about the overturning of rope, by the way, this is not them saying, I'm already living a sexually controlled life. I'm not engaging in hookup culture, so it doesn't really bother me, right? That, that would be kind of my perspective as well. The overturning of Roe versus Wade does not affect my sex life at all, because I'm already married and me and my wife are expecting another child right now. So that doesn't affect me. That's not why these men are not worried. They're not worried because they feel like they could just abandon whatever girl they get pregnant. That's why they say they're not worried. Hookup culture doesn't appeal to that. I mean, this fear of impregnating someone in hookup culture doesn't worry them because they have no bonds to the women that they're hooking up with and they could casually push them aside and do their own thing. This is what is being discussed here. And this guy, credit to him, is like, wait, but if I sleep with someone and they get pregnant, that's my kid, and don't I have responsibilities to my kid? And he's kind of thinking through this. Now, uh, if if you're from an older generation and this article seems very odd to you, you're like, these kids never made the connection that sex produces children? They have never had to. They've been raised in a culture that believes that biology is basically subject to the whims of modern science. We can do whatever we want, and nature can't really impose on our desires. And if it does, how dare it? So Freedom of choice isn't
1: freedom of consequence. And unfortunately, the propaganda, to its credit, is now making people think in these terms.
0: Exactly. So the idea is with Roe versus uh, Wade being overturned, people are saying, oh no, like you mean that biology and nature are actually going to have a say in what I do with my body. That's shocking to them. That's absolutely shocking. Now again, this is good. Now I'll try to explain this in both biblical terms and in secular terms. Let's start secularly and then we'll move it into the Bible because this is where it's found. So. When it comes to ethics, when it comes to laws, there are a couple interpretations of why we pass particular laws and why we have certain ethical standards. Certain people believe that, and this is more of a modern idea, that. Laws and ethical standards are completely arbitrary, and they're societally made. They just kind of exist, right? We, by our free will, impose them on one another. It's just a power structure.
1: Therefore, if the laws are changed, then morality is being rewritten.
0: That's right. Now, Christians don't believe that way. Uh, we actually don't believe that the laws can change at all. We believe that ethics are not grounded in some sort of list of rules, right? We don't believe that when God wrote down the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, that's when it became bad to murder people. But until that point, God was cool with it. Uh, We believe that ethical commandments are written in God's character, right? So because he created everything, his being actually comprises everything that makes what we call right is wrong. In fact, everyone in history has thought this way until about the last century and a half.
1: (laughs) Hindu's would look to their Brahmins as the standard for morality dictating their caste and how to function properly within it, and how to properly work out their karma. Muslims would look to the character and dictates of Muhammad and the Sunnah in order to determine morality. Christians look to the character of Christ. Pagans would look to their culture and its gods as the foundation for what ethics they want to fit into. The only time where autonomy and self-willed morality have ruled the day was upon the advent and popularization of atheism. And we can see how it's deprived people of, I guess in this case, common sense.
0: That's right. So in other words, when we talk about ethics as a Christian, when we talk about ethical responsibilities and morality and even legal obligations, what we mean is that they they already exist— all man can do is recognize them. So they kind of exist like numbers, right? Numbers don't exist in a material sense, right? I can't show you a one. I could write a symbol for one that we recognize in English or some sort of other language. I can show you a representation of one. I could hold up one water bottle or one book, but that's not one. One is a number. It's an abstract idea that we can only represent. We can't physically see it or quantify it. It doesn't have any materialistic aspects to it in that way. Now, you can represent numbers correctly or incorrectly though. Right? If I represent numbers correctly, I was a mortarman in the Marines. If we represent numbers correctly, we can actually hit a target about three miles out without actually having to see the target. It's pretty impressive. If we get numbers wrong, we hit the wrong target, right? It becomes very obvious that what we have done is massively incorrect. Laws and ethics are like that. They exist. You can't see them, you can't quantify them, but they exist. There is a nature that is inherent within humanity. And if you represent that nature correctly through ethical standards and laws, then you will help people to flourish. If you represent it incorrectly, depending on in how incorrect you are, you will damage people, right? You will harm them in massive ways. Now, what we've done is by taking away the biological consequences of promiscuous sex, we've come to the conclusion of, well, therefore, there are no consequences to promiscuous sex. Is that true? Well, I wish it were, but unfortunately it's not. When you look at certain aspects in our society right now that are crumbling, one of the big ones that I'll pull out is fatherlessness, right? So we're talking about men in this article, right? And their view towards sex and their view towards responsibility. There's a reason why fatherlessness is on the rise in our society, it's because men do not equate the sexual act with responsibility and they don't want to be held down by responsibility. So therefore, even if they do produce a child, they still don't feel responsible for it, and they move away. Now, this is not all men. Fortunately, there are a lot of good fathers out there. I'm thankful that I had a very good father. I know you're thankful you had a very good father who stuck around. But my dad actually has a very good insight into this. Just last week, he posted something on his Facebook about fatherlessness, how it's on the rise, and he gave some stats that were really disturbing about how many people who are incarcerated right now that had fathers, not not uh, not many. (laughs) I think it was I I, I might be butchering these stats a little bit, but not by much. I might be off at most by 10 percent. And he said that the amount of fatherless convicts are around 75 to 80 percent. Uh, The amount of drug addicts were 85 to 90 percent. The amount of domestic abusers who don't have fathers are again 75 to 80 percent. And you start to see a trend, right? Fatherlessness is a big deal. So even though we've taken away some of the consequences of sex, right, some of the consequences of sex, even if a guy decides like, okay, I want to have intimacy with this person, I want to actually be married, they don't, they haven't built into themselves a mentality of responsibility. And so therefore, even when they do produce a child, because again, these are people that could have aborted their children, but they're just choosing not to, right? Once that choice is made, the man doesn't suddenly become a man. He doesn't suddenly realize like, oh, I have obligations and responsibilities. Let me gear my mind towards these responsibilities and live out my role. He flees from the role. He runs away from it and leaves his family. This is what's happening. This is again, and there are many other factors into this, but if you look at happiness, especially happiness of females, it has dropped like a rock since 1973. Uh, It's because, again, this idea of fulfillment being found in our sexual desires and impulses Is just not true. There are many other things that fulfill us. One of them is fulfilling roles as being responsible parents and loving individuals to one another where we're a community. And again, biblically, you don't have to be biologically a parent in order to have a parental role. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about older men and older women in the church community acting in a parental role towards younger men and younger women. So that, that, that type of role is not relegated to people who only biologically become parents, but it's a role that everybody ought to take on to one extent or another. When you aggregate, when you separate yourself from these types of roles and responsibilities, the result is not happiness and flourishing, it tends to be depression, anxiety, and a lot of other weird things. A lack of sense of self, a lack of purpose, and things like that. So again, the ethics, when we read in the Bible, right? What Paul's saying. So what what does Paul say about sexual ethics? Well, let's keep going. So that was their bad interpretation, foods for stomachs, stomachs for food. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 6, he keeps going, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now there's much I could say about this, but just for now, I'll kind of condense it and I'll pass it over to you. What Paul's saying is that the fact that the resurrection happened teaches us that the body matters. And what he's saying is what you do with the body absolutely matters. And when he says it's for the Lord, he's saying that God has enshrined his character in his law. And when we deny his law, we're denying our nature and therefore we're destroying ourselves. Right. So Paul was able to very easily look at the culture of the Corinthians and see how messed up it was and say... Don't you guys realize that you're killing yourselves, right? That's why he begins the statement by saying, hey, everything's lawful, but not everything's beneficial, right? You got to understand that you guys are really annihilating your culture right now by this type of behavior. And then he goes on and he talks about the sexual ethic. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? for the two he says shall become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him so paul is saying that sex is not to be one faceted it's not to be one sided where i'm just getting sexual pleasure from it paul is saying that sexual pleasure is a a part of a much greater whole right that the responsibility the physical intimacy the emotional intimacy the whole life commitment they all go hand in hand they all Complement one another and feed off of one another and make the experience that much better. The monstrosity of hookup culture and sexual promiscuity is you're taking one aspect of sex and you're alienating it from all the others that make it special. And that won't make you healthy. It'll make you foolish. It would be the example of someone eating food and then vomiting it up. So I'm getting one aspect of what food does for me. It's pleasurable to eat it, depending on what food you eat but I'm lacking, I'm denying my body the other nutritional benefits of food. Now, if I do that, eventually I'll die. If I do it long enough, eventually I'll die because food needs to take that whole part in my body. Um, Any last thoughts? Well, just understand that when it comes
1: to the lack of knowledge or the lack of wisdom in any given generation, there's always going to be those who are going to come into something late, and we can be happy in the regard of this, that they accidentally stumbled on almost the right answer. However, if we create a moral culture apart from the Lord, We've essentially just redirected ourselves on a smoother road to hell. If, on the other hand, we want to take this as an opportunity to say, well, I appreciate the fact that you're scared and you're trying to make more responsible decisions, it's going to be a lot better for you if you not only think through these decisions, but what about others, because a better conversation has now come up. When it comes to people's decisions regarding their sexuality, regarding their diet, regarding their anything, it's obviously going to be personal because they see the greatest good as their body and it's reactions to things around them. If we can take this as an opportunity to ask people better questions and saying, well you're starting to ask yourself about consequences about this life, what about the next life? Don't hesitate to see this as an open door. Find your local ministry's outreach opportunities and start engaging with people on these questions because, given our experience, they aren't asking them for long, but we want to take advantage of every opportunity we have and say, how can the gospel fit into this? That should be and continues to be our job. Make sure that we're fulfilling that. If you see People just basically living off of anxiety, and they notice you aren't, take this as an opportunity to have answers ready and saying, you know, why aren't you concerned about all this? Aren't you concerned about Roe versus Wade? Well, you can go the route of saying, well, no, because that's not what Roe versus Wade does, but if on the other hand, if our conversations don't ultimately end with the person of Jesus Christ, then being able to point out the obvious to someone won't actually do them any long-term help. Use even the society's ignorance in God's favor. Allow the Holy Spirit to use you and us to not only be gentle, but also to be seasoned with salt. To be the kind of people that are preserving goodness, not just for goodness sake, but for God, so that people could come to a saving relationship with Him. That's always our goal. Again, we're proud of the kids for stumbling on the right answer, but the test isn't over. Make sure that we're giving them answers to even more important questions while they're still asking them. Speaking of questions and going out to our comment sections, one on YouTube and one on Facebook asked the same theme, and I think it's a very good one. Uh, Craig wants to know, when a person absolutely believes in God's ability to heal, why doesn't it happen? I personally have no doubt myself, but he wasn't sure how to answer. And Yari was also curious about the resurrection of Tabitha, or Dorcas, in the book of Acts. Why these sort of things don't happen more often, or if more often than not, people claim that they happen when in fact they're frauds. So the question of miracles and where that places, not just in our society today, but every society, and I think the answer is going to, of course, we don't have to leave First Corinthians, but be found in Scripture as well. Paul has been speaking to a group of people who have, and this is the flow of the conversation just so you understand, the topic of communion and approaching these things as commonplace. The sort of things that you do in the church to honor God specifically, these aren't to be done lightly. And from that, he tells them to examine themselves based on what standard, well, what actually should be happening, not just in what Jesus instructed, but the new things the Spirit is doing in and through his church every single day. And this is where we begin in 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away with these dumb idols. However, you um, were led Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So before getting into anything as far as what God does, here's first what he doesn't do. He's not going to shame, mock, or dismiss the name of Jesus. In fact, it is only by the Holy Spirit that we acknowledge Jesus as anything more than just another name in history. People aren't saved unless the Spirit draws them. So if that's then our working knowledge, what's the tone of this going forward? anything else that the Spirit does is also going to be in line with his character, with his nature, and this is where the answer comes up. Because note, Craig, you asked about healing, Yara, you asked about resurrections. Let's follow Paul's argument and make sure that we learn how to judge whether or not a miracle is legitimate, and if it fulfills its purpose, then we could know what to expect. This is verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit there are differences of ministries but the same lord and there is note this there are diversities of activities but the same god who works all in all but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all so there's a goal in mind here that god's not just you know stingy with his gifts or he's sporadic these are for the profit of all. These are meant to affect more than just you. And it's the first chapter of Second Corinthians, he notes, even the comfort that we receive from God through trials is not meant to be kept to ourselves. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, discerning of spirits, etc., etc. But notice, as Paul's laying all these things out, which Craig, both you and Yari's question fill in, he says, but one, verse 11, in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, the verses that follow note, you are the body of Christ, members individually, but for the purpose and function of the whole. If we were only one gift, then where would be the other gifts? Just like if our body was only one appendage, where would be the others? They all serve different purposes to the benefit of all, and it's supposed to be this way. We're not giant eyeball monsters or giant finger monsters, right? We are meant to fulfill roles as the Spirit, as the the Lord as the one who gives us these spirits, as God dictates and wills, and that is for what purpose? Well, Jesus said that when he would send the Spirit, this is in John chapter 16, he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, the fact that we have something wrong between us and God, righteousness, the fact that God is the only one who's in a right relationship with himself, that we need him, he has what we need, and judgment, that we need to come to a decision about these things. And then building on that point, we could essentially call it the gospel, the good news that God has provided our righteous, or his righteousness for our sin to avoid ultimate negative judgment. If that's then the case, then all of these spiritual gifts are meant for what purpose? the thing that the Spirit was sent to do, to make us aware of our need for a Savior. Now, that can happen through the teaching of His Word, which, according to Paul, is a miracle, is a work of God that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Sound teaching, healings, any of these things are all examples of God working in order to do what? Not to just deal with the sickness, deal with the in Dorcas's case, physical death, but for the purpose the Spirit was sent by our Lord, and it was to do what? To bring us to a saving knowledge of Him, to grow in our relationship and our understanding of Him, our fellowship with Him and with each other. All these things are meant to and accommodated to by what? The workings of the Spirit, according to His will, not our own. We have preferences, we have desires, we like the more dramatic and at face value, but the Spirit has different priorities. How do I know that? Well, look around. (laughs) What are the sort of things that He's doing in and through His church today? You see, hopefully, a lot of good teaching. You don't see a lot of legitimate healings, and you certainly don't see as many uh, outright raisings from the dead. In the book of Acts, That was what was necessary. Why? Because to the audience that he was speaking to, they needed reason to trust the words that they were hearing from the apostles, and more specifically, in this case, Paul. When Jesus was on this earth and he performed miracles, did he do it just to show off, or as he himself said, that you may know and believe that I am? These were all meant to verify the Word of God, the character of God, the nature of God, what God was here to tell us about. If we then go to God and say, okay, I believe you, so can you entertain me now? No, his purposes haven't ceased. We still need to grow in him, and we have the opportunity, note, for the profit of all, not just for the individual, to share with people the things that God has done and through us. And if it's sticking to his word, the note, that's enough. To be able to take notes to be able to take these things to heart to be able to look these things up like the things that we're speaking with you and to verify them to know is god really speaking here and by the spirit testing all things and holding fast to what is good a word of knowledge that's come to you from the lord a word of wisdom a word of teaching these things are of the Spirit too. So to say that the Spirit isn't working would be false. He's just not working in those ways. Why? Because he has the right to decide how he's working. How is he working? According to his purpose, and if we understand that, that our expectations of him are going to be informed, not to be, I guess, misdirected on the basis of desire. That, I think, is hopefully clear enough on the issue, but is there anything I'm missing in this? I just want to
0: read a passage illustrate it pretty well. So uh, someone who might respond and say, like, well, you know, in the Bible, Jesus says that your faith has made you well. So obviously people's faith makes God heal them, right? And so if you're not being healed, then you must not have enough faith. This is how people in the prosperity movement would talk. Well, there is an instance in the Bible where there was a pretty faithful dude Fairly faithful guy who prayed for a healing and didn't get it. So let's read his story and we'll apply it to what Sean's saying. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven. And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So the Apostle Paul pretty heavy hitter inside of the early church, healed countless individuals through his ministry, received some sort of an affliction. We don't really know what it was, but it's in the flesh, right? Something is happening to his body, and he is praying consistently with God. He is pleading with God three times for God to take it away. Now, God responds to him, and notice the response. And he, God, said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, "'for my strength is made perfect in weakness.'" Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Jesus' response to Paul was not, well, Paul, you're not praying with enough faith, so I'm not going to heal you. Jesus' response to Paul was, I'm trying to accomplish a greater miracle of understanding in your life and nearness to you, and I am accomplishing this through your infirmity, right? It's happening through whatever thing is plaguing your body. So Paul comes to the conclusion that God is saying no to that physical miracle in order to give him something better in a spiritual way. Uh, So this is a role of God healing when he chooses and refusing to heal when he chooses as well, for a good purpose. Now, is this the response for everybody? I would say that this response right here is applicable to every denial of healing to an extent. This is one thing that God can accomplish in every infirmity, that because we are weak and because we are needy and destitute when our bodies are afflicted or our lives are afflicted, it causes a dependency on God and a reliance upon him that we can't get any other way. Uh, Justin Martyr, famous Christian... Uh, early church father, he once said, God can only be all that we need once he is all that we have, right? And obviously he is writing about martyrs (laughs) in this particular instance. So there is something that happens to us when we're in moments of need that we begin to depend on God and see that he really is all that we need. That's what happened to Paul. But there are also many other reasons as to why God reserves the right to say no to healings, even if it seems very pleasurable to us. Uh, Some Christian theologians debated for long periods of time about why God would allow, say, children to die. They would say, well, like, they're not learning from it. They're too young to learn dependency on God. They're not being benefited by it in any particular way, and they're dying, so it's not retroactively going to be an important lesson for them. So why would God do this? And they came to various conclusions, uh, but most of them said, we don't know. Perhaps it can help the parents in some way. Perhaps it's for the benefit of others. But maybe it's just because we live in a fallen, broken world in which disease happens, and God is allowing that disease and that and that brokenness to continue, because if you were to return right now and set everything right, then all sinners would be wiped out. And God wants to give sinners time to repent, as opposed to coming back and putting into place His perfect law and His perfect rule. Uh, those are all viable things for us to think about, but long story short, I think that first answer is the most correct. We don't really know. We don't really know why God says no to healing. I think that it's a mistake for us as Christians to think that we know perfectly why God is saying no to healing. This is, by the way, the main purpose of Job, right? The main purpose of Job is God trying to explain to Job, you don't know why this is happening to you, and you can't know. God's response to Job at the end is, he gives many metaphors to show this, but he's like, there's a lot of things going on in the creation that you don't get, Job. This is just one of them, right? This is just one of them. I could try to explain it to you, but you're not going to understand, so you're going to have to trust me, right? So God does reserve the right to refuse healings to people, even people who sincerely ask him, even people who have very good reason to ask him, and believe wholeheartedly that God has the power to do so, and he does it for his purposes,
1: And then as a follow-through, what about things like the Toronto Blessing, the Azusa Street Brownsville Revival, the Louis Angel Live Tape Revival, etc., all these instances of people in the name of a false gospel, and we don't hesitate to call it that, who are seeing, apparently, signs and wonders, these sort of things. Obviously, we can go back to the good old OG Torah, and note that even if a sign or a wonder has appeared but it's in the name of another god, it's contrary to God's word. You're not to listen to it. God's testing you to know that you may love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But even if that were the case, these legitimate quote-unquote signs weren't signs in the first place. The just to name the Toronto Blessing, for one, those of you listening, it was an instance in Toronto, Canada, where a revival broke out, and as the Spirit was being poured out, people started making animal noises of various colors and varieties. They explained it by quoting a third of a verse out of context, by saying that all that has breath, praise the Lord. This is, therefore, a legitimate move of God. It wasn't. It was, in fact, a result of basically crowd psychology, and also the result of plants of people who through the power of suggestion were making these people do these sort of things, and then they attributed it to God. That's why when Paul notes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are to, in verse 19 through 21, not despise prophecies, people can say whatever they want in a particular order, but we're to test all things and hold fast to what is good. There's always going to be false prophets until God calls them to account. Our job is to have enough of a love for the truth that when it appears to us, we are more than willing to do the extra homework and say, well, this isn't obviously being handed to me on a silver platter, so I should probably examine it to see if there's any poison. I'm not obviously gonna know everything right off the bat, but I need to be willing to exert the effort and say, that doesn't check out that's not what that passage was talking about that's not that's never been demonstrated by the Spirit of God in any scriptural way therefore I'm going to at least keep my distance from it until a better argument in favor of it being of God is going to be pursued that's how we would respond to false revivals or false uh, ministries It's uh, so, like oh people are saved as a result of it hey, The Spirit of God's worked through dumber things, Mm. but that doesn't mean that the work was valid. That means that the Spirit of God moved in spite of the false teaching. Just because good things came out of a bad thing doesn't mean the bad thing's a less bad thing. We focus on the good, but we also want to, and this is especially true in the case of people who've been a part of illegitimate ministries and now are questioning their salvation when these things come out, who was your faith in? Who saved you? Was it this false revival, this crowd psychology phenomena, or was it, in fact, the work of God in your heart? That doesn't change. But the ways in which people counterfeitly present and try to profit off of him, that is going to be new every single day until the Lord returns. That's why we need to be informed and prepared for it. Um, Anything more to note on that? Here's a question from Isaiah who basically wants to know, uh, regarding the controversy of where Cain got his wife and the idea of, in the book of Leviticus chapters 18, through, well, 17 through 18, uh, there's this prohibition against marrying near relatives, whereas passages before that obviously didn't make any objections towards it, obviously not promotions of it either, But when the question is brought up, and this is common among skeptics, does your God just kind of make up morality on the fly? Is morality something progressive, in which case, why can't our United States' hedonistic ethics be something that God can bless today? Or, if it's inconsistent for God to change his nature fundamentally like this, why did he allow something and then forbid something in two separate instances? Obviously, the structure of the question kind of answers itself from one time to another. Circumstances and consequences can be different. Speaking to an audience that knows better, that's obviously going to be distinctive. But let's just put all that aside. When we talk about morality and its application, does that mean that God is making up morality by
0: definition? Uh, no. So th- there's a difference between what we call ethics or morality and when we talk about politics or the legislation of legal codes that dictate human behavior in communion with one another, right? So uh, ethics are represented by God's nature, those are unchanging because God's nature doesn't change. The ethics of the Bible. Don't change. This is why, by the way, when Jesus was questioned about sexual ethics, he brought it back to Genesis chapter two, right? So they were asking about divorce. They're like, well, divorce is present in the Bible. So therefore, that must be a part of God's perfect nature, right? That divorce can happen. And Jesus has to correct them and say, no, divorce is allowable because there's something wrong with human nature, but that does not comp- compromise. God's perfect nature, it just shows that God has made allowances for the degradation of human beings and allowing them to be able to at least limit the amount of damage that a uh, destructive and abusive marriage can have on somebody. That's the idea that we get from Jesus. So when it comes to things like, let's say, polygamy, the sexual ethic, meaning what sex is supposed to do in reflecting God's Trinitarian nature with Himself, which is, again, what 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, that God is giving us a physical understanding, a physical representation of of the intimacy that he has within himself and the intimacy he has within his church through the act of sex. It's picturesque of God and his relationship with self and his relationship with his people. That's what sex is meant to do. That's its purpose. And therefore, sexual ethics guarding sex remain universal and all-encompassing, right? You can't change various things like, can I be abusive in sex, right? Can I force someone in sex? That will always be wrong, no matter what time period you're talking about, because if you force someone within sex, you are not reflecting God's loving and uh, liberty-enabling spirit in that action, Uh, as well as being abusive. God is loving, He is nurturing, He is not someone who is abusive or uncaring about people. So, no, you're not reflecting Him, and therefore it goes against the ethic. Now, I can produce laws to that effect, but all those laws are doing are upholding that ethic and those laws might change depending within the culture what culture i'm speaking to all right so the way to better convey that ethic to cultures might shift depending on where people are coming from so, so- say
1: you have a culture that consists of one and only one family obviously there's not going to be a possible law that involves procreation that says don't marry near relative. That's the only option you have. Exactly. But if, on the other hand, society has been, in this case, especially in Genesis, allowed to branch out a little bit, now other applicable ethics can be defined and outlined in the context of application not definition
0: that's right and and also the the harm so if if we did have the perfect DNA structure of Adam and Eve and therefore having incestuous relationships would not propagate deformities within our progeny within our children then incest wouldn't be wrong there's nothing inherently wrong wrong with incest in the sense that you can actually reflect God's good and perfect nature in it. The reason why we find it so repulsive and disgusting, which by the way, no culture did before Christianity came along, it was very widely practiced, but the reason why we find it so repulsive and disgusting is because we've been raised in a culture that calls it disgusting and repulsive because we recognize that if you have incestuous relationships, the odds, it's not guaranteed, but the odds of having deformed children greatly increase, and that would be seen as an active evil, right? So if I do something with my wife that greatly increases the chances of deforming our children, I'm not acting in love anymore. Now, this goes beyond incest. What if my wife was drinking or smoking during her pregnancy? Same principle. She's doing things that might compromise the health and safety of our child, and therefore she's not acting in a loving way, she's acting in an abusive way towards those children. Does it guarantee that a child who has a mother who drinks a lot of alcohol will be deformed or negatively affected by it? No. But that doesn't mean that that's an act of good, right? In the same way with incest. Does it guarantee that you're going to create someone with deformities? No. But you're greatly increasing your odds, and so therefore it is an evil act, and that's why God outlaws it as the DNA structure becomes more and more compromised after the Flood, especially, right?
1: And note, that's filling in gaps that we've discovered later, as far as Mendelian genetics and so forth in the name itself wasn't discovered until a very long time after the writing of the Old Testament. Right, stuff but,
0: that those people wouldn't have understood, right? right? So God couldn't have expressed it to them that way.
1: But just like with your previous point in Second Corinthians, when Paul was allowed an instance of pain, it was for what purpose? So that you can grow, in a more important area, your trust for me. In Israel's laws, they weren't given every single reason as to why they shouldn't eat shellfish, why they shouldn't mix fibers in a desert environment, and why they shouldn't in that... On and, and washing on. rituals yeah. and things like that. Uh, yeah. All these things were meant to accomplish one of two things. One, so that, as he explains, none of these diseases will come upon you, and that you will love me, that you Mm. will trust me, that that would be demonstrated in your obedience to me. It was essentially killing two birds with one stone, and if this is in fact the purpose, then we're not being told, okay, this is how I live my life, and this is how I fulfill a perfect legal system. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is your fellowship with God and man. Mm. If this is lived out practically in history, well, you'd be the first, like a second, the Lord lived it out perfectly, but that was never the purpose. As we read in the New Testament, the the law is what? The knowledge of sin, not its elimination. If I know how I ought to treat someone in a sexual context, A, that doesn't mean that I always will, from body, heart, soul, or mind, but it also means that I, if I ever deviate, I can look at the law and go, that is a way it was violated. If I then understand the purpose, I'm not going to be nitpicking intri- uh, intricacies and miscategorizing them as somehow inconsistent. God's nature has not changed in definition, but what that looks like in application will depend on who he's talking to. In Genesis, it was what? The only people on the face of the earth who didn't have any other option apart from marrying near relatives. And going all the way to the time of Moses, God didn't make a limit on that, A, because they didn't have a legal system to prohibit it yet, B, they couldn't have understood the physical reasons why that was a bad idea yet, and when God ultimately put a prohibition on it in 1450 BC, it was speaking to Israel in order for them to be made distinct from the other nations. They could ask themselves, hmm, why is it that their children never seem to come out like these interesting specimens here. Are they not cursed by the gods? It says, well, our God told us not to do some of the things you're doing, maybe you'd want to hear about him, and on it goes. But note that is the point and purpose, not a adjustment of morality to fit the time and day. It is a consistent picture of morality, but in appropriate settings. Mm-hmm. And that is what we're talking about. The nature of God hasn't changed, but the application towards man does, especially in the difference between Genesis and Leviticus.
0: Yeah, same point, by the way, with polygamy that you brought up. So it is true that in the Levitical law, you do have a prohibition of polygamy in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, where God says, do not multiply wives as the pagans do. But regardless, there are allowances for polygamist relationships within the law. Why? Well, if God is speaking to a culture that doesn't practice polygamy, then it's very easy for him to just say, don't be polygamist. And we see this in the New Testament, by the way. Uh, We see specific passages in the New Testament about even elders and deacons being the husbands of one wife. But in the Old Testament, when you're dealing with a culture that's already practicing polygamy, what are you going to tell them? Uh, divorce your least favorite wives and disown your children, don't take care of them financially, leave them as sitting ducks to other men and, and other neighboring tribes to be able to take advantage of and sell them to slavery. Obviously that doesn't work, so God gives different provisions for these polygamous families to be able to honor him still. That's what was going on there, but he does forbid it so that by the time you get to Second Temple Judaism, polygamy is no longer practiced. You never really see God saying that polygamy is good or okay. We see that His original intent in Genesis was one man and one woman. That's why He only creates one man and one woman in the beginning and allows them to propagate in that way. But also, if you've ever read, I love Robert Alter, who's one of the premier translators of the Old Testament. Really bright guy. He said anyone who thinks that polygamy is is um, polygamy is basically encouraged in the Old Testament has not yet learned how to read narrative. Now, what he means by that is if you're reading a book, if you're reading a narrative piece of literature, which is what Genesis is, Genesis and Exodus are narrative pieces of literature. They're not prose. um, the, The author would be very lazy to preach to you his moral prerogatives, right? So if you're watching a movie about say drug use, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person making the movie is pro-drug use because he has characters in the movie using drugs. You have to look at what kind of effect do you see promoted within the movie about the drug use. So if you see people using drugs in a movie and it's seen as like a really awesome thing, chances are that the person who made the movie has a very pro-drug view of the world. But if you watch a movie where the people using drugs, are their lives are destroyed by them Again, the, the director doesn't have to come out and say drugs are bad. You see it played it out in the terrible consequences that drugs bring about in the main characters. If you read the book of Genesis, there are quite a few people who practice polygamy within the Old Testament. Most of them are the worst people in that book. And those who are good people in the book, you see major problems as a result of their behavior, huge consequences. You do not see one positive example of polygamy in the Old Testament, which means that the person who wrote the book knew that polygamy was bad. God had already communicated that to his people, and he wanted, by his spirit, inspired that book to point out the flaws of polygamy and why it's wrong. So again, God's morality doesn't change, but the way that God politically or legally advises that morality can shift, depending, or the people who follow God can shift, depending on the culture that they're speaking into. So we can't compromise the law of God, we can't compromise the morality, but there might be ways that we can better accomplish the morality of God through various political means. Yeah, so just to recap all of that the time that we have left, First of all,
1: starting off with people who stumble upon (laughs) self-control and sexual ethics. We want to make sure that the goal is the gospel, not just a proper step in the right direction. More moral people still ultimately are separated from God and need a Savior. We talked about judging true doctrines opposed to false doctrine, not just in regards to, but certainly including the prosperity gospel, and asking why don't healings happen today. We clarified the Spirit has an express purpose in healings and signs, and it's not for entertainment, and not even necessarily for our physical betterment and health. It is for the furtherance of the gospel, the reliability of his word, and the glorification of his name. That can exist, as you stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as potentially being done through the allowance of pain. But note that, and this is a very important quote to keep in mind, God did not distance himself from our pain either. He was the only one truthfully exempt from it, and voluntarily became a part of it. We talked about the concerns and issues behind Cain uh, marrying a near relative, and God allowing these things but then disallowing them in Leviticus 19, the difference between politics and between uh, the ultimate foundation of ethics. We need to make sure that we can... spare. uh, uh, and I guess, spare the time and clarify those issues as well. We thank you all for you guys setting aside the time to hear what's been discussed here today. Keep us in prayer. Keep those of us in the body or in prayer. We've gotten a few. For those of you listening on social media, please keep them in prayer. And we'll see you all again next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.